This is an ABC podcast. Out in the Atlantic Ocean, miles from Land's End, is where you can find a Cornish fishing trawler, the Philadelphia. Its skipper, Don, has rigged up an elaborate sound system with speakers and flashing lights, and as the fish are hauled onto deck, music blasts out across the ocean. Some nights when the waves are as black as ink and Don feels the need for a good cry, he puts Adele on the stereo and turns her up loud, singing along through his tears. On Conversations today, my guest is Lamorna Ash. Lamorna spent eight days at sea on the Philadelphia, helping the crew sort and gut fish, doing her best not to throw up and singing along to a lot of power ballads. That time on the trawler was part of Lamorna's mission to get to know Cornwall, where her mum is from. And in order to know Cornwall, she had to really get to know fishing. Her book is Dark, Salt, Clear, Life in a Cornish Fishing Town. Hi, Lamorna. Hi. So your mum is from Cornwall. How does your name, Lamorna, honour that connection? So Lamorna is a small Cornish cove and it's on the opposite coastline of where my mum's from. It's actually very near to Newlyn. And my dad and her were deciding on names. And I think my mum feels that Cornish connection so strongly. I think it's the thing that often makes her most emotional She when she's thinking about home and how important that place is. So I think for her, naming me Lamorna meant that though she lived away in London, she could still be connected back to Cornwall in some way. So it wasn't a place you lived growing up, but you did go on holidays there. What memories do you have of Cornwall as, as a kid? So we'd go to Cornwall every summer and Easter. My memory of it is we'd leave the house at about five in the morning because my dad has chronic road rage. So the earlier he could go, the less likely he'd get in a really bad fight with someone um, in the car. And then we'd stop at a service station and have the greasiest breakfast. And I think it was the only time I'd have a really greasy breakfast. And then we'd get to Cornwall at maybe midday because it it's about five hours from London. And we'd stay in the house of my great-grandmother, which had been a pigsty and then got converted into this beautiful cottage. And then we'd just be there and it would probably rain a huge amount and my brothers might come as well. And that would be my place for summer and for Easter with this beautiful beach called La Lamp Beach and the looks out over St Ives Bay. And it was a really idyllic place, but it was a place detached from people. Lalant as a village, it's quite touristy, but it's also the people who live there are quite elderly. There's not much of a thriving community. There's not much of a pub life. So my sense of Cornwall was actually quite a beautiful place, but quite an empty place, which is obviously totally different from the Cornwall that I then found when I was writing my book. So when you decided that you wanted to go and, and live in Cornwall as an adult and started looking around for a place to stay, you got a call from a woman called Denise. What did she ask you? Yeah, so um, I'd sent a few feelers out trying to see if there were any spare rooms. And I got one couple who then changed their mind um, and then were looking around again. And then they gave me Denise's email address and I emailed her and she said, there's a few things that I need to know first. I think she was checking that I wasn't some terrifying person who might turn up and kind of wreck her house. And her questions were, do you like smoking? Do you like a drink? And do you like cats? And I liked all three things. So she said, OK, I think we'll be all right. <laughs> Once you got to know her, which of those questions do you think was most crucial, Lamorna? What did you really need to like to be able to live with Denise and her husband, Lofty? Do you know what? That's a really difficult question because all three are so significant. <laughs> I actually would struggle to choose because um, Denise would always sit with a cigarette in hand, her and Lofty, in their living room, watching TV, uh, chatting and laughing together. Often we'd go to the pub and we'd get really drunk, the three of us, and then buy a bottle of vodka on our way back to get more drunk. Um, and then uh, sort of omnipresent throughout my entire time there, their lovely two very fat cats would be sat on the sofa. So I think all those three things, I think they're not mutually exclusive. I think they all have to be there together at once. <laughs> what did they do for work, Denise and Lofty? Denise worked in the fishmongers, Stevenson's, which um, is right on the front. So fishermen uh, could just pull if they were day fishermen. So they'd just go out for the day. They could then pull their fish across from the harbour um, right down into the shop. And then Lofty worked at Servitec, which is 
like a ship's chandlers. So they sell things like rope and lifeboats and all that kind of thing. And then every single day at lunchtime, Denise and Lofty, because the places they worked were just down from each other, about two minutes walk, they'd then walk back together to have lunch and have a sandwich back at their home, which is another couple of minutes walks away. So the way that they live is they're so beautifully intertwined in their life. So both of their jobs are connected to fishing. How common is that in that town in Newland? There's a phrase, and it often changes the numbers, as a lot of kind of common phrases seem to in Newland. But they say something like, for every one man at sea, that's three to five on land. So a lot of Newland is still sustained by the sea. So there's other jobs that you might work in the factories. Um, you might be in the crab factory shelling crabs. Quite a few little old ladies shell the crabs, and they've got this lovely factory uh, just up the Coombe, which is a river by Newland. And then you get people like uh, who do maintenance on the ships and engineers and people who come and go on their massive lorries when they're taking the fish back down to maybe London or other parts of the country. People who work in the market, which is a really fun, unusual working space because you're there from about five in the morning till about eight every morning um, auctioning off the fish in a really chaotic way where people are kind of yelling out bids and then you don't really know quite what's happened and then a sort of a really exciting haul comes in, like turbot that sells for lots of money and suddenly everyone wants the turbot and kind of rushes over there. So there's yeah, loads of different jobs actually linked, linked to fishing. So you wanted to go and, and experience the primary job connected with fishing, being on a trawler, and you found Don, who agreed to take you along on the Philadelphia. What did that boat look like as you walked towards it down the pier on the morning you were sailing out? Well, I'd previously been on another trawler, which was owned by a pair of St Ives fishermen, uh, two brothers. And St Ives is thought of as Newland. Uh, they believe it to be a bit snooty. And that boat was palatial. It had a massive TV up in the wheelhouse and it was incredibly clean. And I had a sort of separate bunk to myself that was slightly removed from the other men. So I assumed that would be the experience of all trawlers. But actually, on the left-hand side of the pier, there's the Stevenson's trawlers. And there's about five or six of them sort of sibling vessels. There's Philadelphia was made in 1969. And she is uh, rusting and dirty. And there's sort of little trails of cigarette ash everywhere. And she's got a lot of character. But she was sitting sort of heavily into the side of the pier and sort of looked like she was kind of keeling over a bit. <laughs> and so I looked at her and I thought, oh, my gosh, OK, this is a proper fishing trawler. This is not like the shiny St Ives fishing trawler. <laughs> and, and where are the nets on it? Can you see them from, from as you approach the boat? Usually they'll be trailing in the water. They're barely out of the water apart from when they've caught the, the fish and then the haul comes up. But before we went out, they were actually laid out. Uh, actually, they weren't. They were suspended. So there's two derricks, which are these big yellow, almost like cranes that pull um, when the winch, with the winch, they pull the, the nets out of the water. And they had already been pulled up so that the men could look for any holes. So they were kind of glistening and they've got, amazing colours on them, sort of bright greens and orange, which are the dollies, the kind of the parts that trail along the water. And then these huge black cross hatches of the net and they were suspended up above the trawler. So I could see them there. And then as soon as you set off, you then lower the derricks and it's like sort of big bird wings that come down and then the nets disappear below the water to kind of skim along the bottom. What time of year was it that you set out on board the Philadelphia? It was mid-November. And I think, again, before I'd gone in May, and so I, I knew that it was going to be a lot colder. I packed a lot of jumpers. I think I'd gone to a outdoor store and just bought about three fleeces, and so I was ready to go, and I had my big, thick sleeping bag as well. But actually, surprisingly, there were a couple of days where the weather was not even that it was rainy and not even that it was massively windy. It was just, it just felt gloomy and grey and a bit empty. But we had one beautiful day, that kind of autumnal, almost wintry, bright, bright blue. And it feels so hot because the sun is bouncing off the water. And one of the fishermen took his top off and we were almost sort of sunbathing <laughs> uh, in the middle of this like, beautiful blue sea. So that was amazing for November. Before you, you sailed off, you went with Don to shop for food for this eight-day trip. What did he buy? 
that was, I think, maybe one of my favourite bits. It was like becoming a child again and going shopping with your parents. But whereas usually your parent is stopping you from putting in delicious things in your basket, I was kind of saying to Don, are you, are you sure we need that much? And he bought pretty much everything. I think we, in fact, went to two shops. I think we went to Tesco's and Lidl's and maybe the Co-op as well. And he had this massive list. So we got about 20 different types of meat, about four different types of sausage within that uh, meat subsection. We had every kind of chocolate bar you could possibly desire, hundreds of yogurts. But uh, Don would buy big industrial packs of yogurt, but would take out all the cherry because he thought cherry was a disgusting flavour and no one ever liked it. Uh, we had hundreds of crisp packets, loads of condiments. It was honestly the largest shop I've ever seen done. It was great. <laughs> and then what's it feel like when those engines start up, when you were on deck and, and the crew were there? What's that moment? Maybe this is too obvious and maybe I use this image for a lot of different things that are scary, but it is the waiting for a roller coaster to start because you're strapped in and it's too late and you know that maybe this experience is going to be intense and you're going to have no control over what's happening. So it is that real anticipation and, and fear as well. I think as a person, and maybe this is going to be something that starts to fade as, as I'm getting a bit older, but I don't really look before I leap. So I was kind of like, oh, great, I've got a berth on a trawler. Off we go, this is going to be really exciting. But then there's that moment when you start to leave the land and you're thinking about things like seasickness and the fact that you're going to be stuck in a very small space for eight days. And I didn't know any of the guys really apart from Don. And even Don, I didn't know. I knew him from the pub. And you think, oh, my gosh, there's, there's no way of going back now. And if your seasickness gets really bad and you have to be taken back, you've just really impacted upon the men's weekly pay packet. So there's, there's that sense of responsibility as well that you don't want to cause them issues whilst you're at sea because you're a passenger. Where did Don spend most of his time once you were out in the ocean? As the skipper, so in charge of the whole boat. And I think that's a huge amount of pressure in general because the men really are depending on you for which directions you choose to go in, where you think the fish are going to be, when to come back to land so that you make the best amount of money compared to the other boats that went in that morning. But he doesn't tend to do the actual hauls on deck. He'd be up in the wheelhouse smoking away. And from there, you look out at these at this large open window and then you can see the men on deck picking out the fish and so he would be up there there's all these levers it's sort of multicolored. it's really kind of visually pleasing it's what i think um maybe a cockpit looks like in an airplane so yeah. so he's up there sort of king of the domain did the other mm. members of the crew take turns to be on watch as well yeah definitely so Don barely sleeps when he's out there, so we rotate between who's on watch. So there's a big main chair, and it looks like an old sort of sports car chair, sort of big leather thing that they've kind of stuck up there. And every three or four hours, it switches who's on watch because you always need someone on watch. And the men choose their hours, and they stick to them throughout the week because there's so little tethering you to a usual timetable while you're at sea that it's nice to have some kind of routine or some kind of structure to your days. So someone would have the 3am watch, which is the witching hour, and you'd be there from 3 till 6 in the morning. And then you'd go back down to your bunk for sleep. So no one's hours are regular. But Don would be there the most. And even when it wasn't his turn, he'd be going up there and saying, what are we doing? Are you sure you're still following the right thing? And he really kind of, I think, was kind of constantly a bit concerned by what was going on and worrying about the, about the amount of money we'd made. What's the fishwife's call? The fishwife's call is just before uh, the haul. You need to wake up the men because you need at least two men on deck pulling up the derricks and checking um, the fish and, and opening up the nets and then retying the cod's end, which is the knot, and then sending the, the nets back over into the sea. And then you need another man to come up and to then help you with the gutting of all the fish, which is done at the very back of the boat. So whoever's on watch goes down and he has to wake up all the men. And sometimes fishermen do that in a very polite way. And sometimes they'll do that by throwing water <laughs> at the men. And it really depends on the skipper and how kind he is. Um, but it always feels like a stupid thing to yell at them because then you do get a very angry fisherman coming up from his sleep, having been disrupted from whatever he was dreaming. What's it look like when those two enormous nets are hauled up out of the ocean? 
Oh, it's kind of amazing because you can see all these different fish wriggling within them. So it's very colorful. Um, and there's things like there's small sharks and there's crabs sort of pulling their way out of the material. And then, yeah, there's these bright orange dollies at the end. These kind of like, they look like kind of clown hair. And then as they're pulled up, the men are kind of desperately looking in to see if there's going to be expensive fish, the fish that's selling a lot in the market. And then they have to, wearing their big uh, yellow raincoats and their oilskins, yeah, so they're wearing their oilskins. And then they stick their heads almost inside the nets to kind of release the cod's end. And then all these fish cascade onto the deck. And then they have to sort through them on their hands and knees and sort of fling them into different boxes for different kinds of fish. And what kind of fish was the Philadelphia mainly bringing up? So I guess because it's a trawler, so they are just kind of um, dragging the nets along the bottom, you can't have no idea what's going to come up. But the things that they got most of were a lot of lemon soles and dover soles, a fair few crabs, then lots of ling. Turbot was the thing that they really wanted. Turbot was the most expensive in the market at the time, so it would fetch the best price. And it's this really beautiful white gleaming fish, and you kind of cut um, a hole in it. Uh, to make sure that the blood runs out in a particular way so that they stay this beautiful white colour and don't kind of turn into sort of bluish bruise colour by the time they're back in the market. Um, and the other thing we caught a lot of is cuttlefish, which there was no... Um, they, you didn't have to pay extra money for that at the moment. So they were calling that black gold because you could make so much money. I think we made maybe £3,000 off cuttlefish the week that I was there. Um, and they're these sort of horrible, really globular looking fish they are more like squid and when you hold them in a particular way when they're afraid they spit out black ink which the fishermen thought was hilarious and would constantly be kind of putting the cuttlefish in the face of another fisherman <laughs> is there a lot of noise going on on the deck while the fish are being sorted there definitely is. It's quite hard to hear one another. Fishing boats are incredibly loud and it sounds like being on a sort of building site. There's kind of when, when the derricks are coming up, all the sort of uh, whining and squeaking noises. And then the sea itself, if it's a particularly windy day, is sort of slapping against the side and you're uh, moving from side to side, kind of swaying with it and trying to keep balance whilst you've got this little knife and cutting through the fish on deck. And what about the music coming from Don's sound system? Could you hear that down on deck as well? Actually, you could only hear little whispers of that. So that was quite strange. That was quite ghostly. It was like coming from another room, but now and then you would pick up on it and think, oh, okay, he's gone back to Adele or he's doing actually some Elvis crooning this morning. <laughs> and how late into the night did those hauls happen? So they never stop. So it really is. It's just every three hours. And I think the phrase is keep the gear wet, never miss a toe. So as soon as those nets have come back up, the fish are kind of um, taken out and then it goes back down again. And in the next three hours, then you'll bring the nets up again. So it never stops. So it might be at four in the morning. And those hauls felt so different and they felt much more maybe electrifying, like the mood felt really different and everything, all the colours were different and you had these big white lights gazing down on the deck and, it, yeah, these sort of huge long shadows and you could see nothing beyond the trawler so it really felt like you were in the middle of absolutely nowhere. As you said, Lamora, after the, the fish are sorted, there's this whole process of gutting them. How tricky was it for you to learn how to gut those fish? It was quite tricky, particularly because you're gutting them alive. So they are kind of pulling out of your hand and squirming about the deck. So that was definitely not easy. I was also given, for very fair reasons, a very blunt knife, um, which made things harder. But I think it was because they saw that my emotions on the deck were so unsteady that otherwise I'd be likely to topple over with a large knife in my hand. And each fish requires a different kind of gutting, so that the way you make the incision. So you're acting like surgeons in a way. And then you have to, once you've got the knife inside, there's a sort of flick where you can feel this almost string of guts. It's like I described it as um, a magician's handkerchief that just goes on and on and on. And all these like beautiful pink and purple coloured guts come out of the fish. But it took me a lot of times and I'd often end up spraying guts onto myself. I ended up, my hair was sort of thick with guts by the end. What about the first time you were handed a ray to gut? What was that like? I think I had so many associations with rays because in London where I grew up, um, in the London Aquarium, 
there were these beautiful stingrays and as a kid you'd go there on school trips and you'd get to tickle the stingrays and so in my head stingrays seemed much more sentient than other kinds of fish they seemed closer to things like dolphins and sharks and um, they've got anthropomorphic faces and they're huge with these beautiful very strong wings so when i was handed a ray i was slightly more horrified because there's something about the typical shape the almost like kindergarten shape of a fish that's that kind of semicircle and then the little triangle and this was nothing like that and the way that you kill a ray is you stab it in the heart and its its mouth is gaping at you and it's sort of it's like kind of puckering like it's trying to make a sort of kissing noise and then you tear right down through it and it flaps its wings trying to get at you and i think i was completely horrified but fascinated by the experience of killing rays because it did just feel it felt much more horrifying i felt more like a murderer and the men saw this sort of fascination stroke horror in me and kept giving me rays that became my fish that i would then take the guts out of what are they used for rays are they eaten they are eaten they tend not to be eaten in the uk so often they might be sent abroad maybe to places like japan and sometimes parts of europe as well so 70% of the fish is exported mostly to europe but also further further afield as well and where are the fish and the rays taken once they've been gutted out on deck so then you take them down to the fish room which is this cavernous room below and you get to it via a trap door in the deck and it's very dark down there and freezing cold because they've got all the ice there that they keep um and you descend via a stepladder so it's kind of it's it's quite um, treacherous as a way to go and then you get down to the bottom and there's all these boxes and you fill them with ice and then the fish are divided into their different species and then they're piled high so you get these almost like skyscrapers of fish that are getting more and more kind of again swaying and you have to by the end I'd have to climb up various boxes to then put the next fish box above it and by the time you go back to land the entire room is just covered in these boxes and um, with all these various fish inside them that sounds quite eerie lamora imagine being down there in that icy kind of cavern with the ocean all around you that must have been pretty spooky in that freezer room it definitely was and in those first few days when i was experiencing kind of the tail end of seasickness as well you could feel that more down there and it was also there's something about knowing that you're below sea level and you're underneath this big trap door that did feel quite eerie and there's stories about how sometimes fish haven't been killed um, effectively and they're actually just in this comatose state and suddenly an eel or something will then kind of shake within its box so it does it feels the closest to a sort of ghost story down there did you get hungry doing all of this you know fairly intense physical labor i definitely did and i don't know if this is true but i lived by the belief that it was true that burn something like 2000 calories a day just by trying to keep your balance on a trawler because you're constantly having to readjust your center of gravity and work out how to stay uh, upright and also then the work itself it's a lot of heavy lifting so i was always starving and the way it worked is that lunch you'd do kind of your own thing and same with breakfast and i did go into a diet of crisps and chocolate because there was no one telling me i couldn't and everyone else was doing that too and i kind of relished that and then for dinner every night Kyle who was the youngest fisherman he was my age so he was about 22 23 as well he is the ship's cook so in between hauls and in between his time on watch he'd be concocting these mega meat dishes which would include three or four different types of meat and you'd have these rich thick creamy or sweet sauces and huge piles of potatoes and another fisherman on a different trawler i i spoke to so many different fishermen about their experiences and he was saying that they don't even bother eating on plates they each have their own roasting tin oh because God. it's just not big enough to have it on a plate anymore <laughs> so don's crazy sh- shopping trip before he went away was actually reasonable it sounds like in the end definitely i think we returned with nothing maybe one last chocolate bar <laughs> to help you all live together in that confined space like are there different kinds of manners that you you had to learn that you needed to observe at sea i think definitely and i think i was deeply aware of taking up space and of changing their experience and not wanting to have a negative impact on them i think almost that way if you're a guest in a house it's a maybe similar experience so things like knowing okay well that's that person's favorite snack and if you eat those last crisps you will get yelled at and sworn at 
or for instance there's a very small toilet with a I'm not going to dignify it by saying it's a shower, but you've got a kind of very hot sort of shower head that you can you can use briefly. And I kind of gave up on that because no one else seemed to be showering. So I thought, well, I won't shower either. Then we all smell terrible together. But with the toilet, I'd always put the seat up because I felt, OK, as the only woman, that's a very small, polite thing I could do. And you learn when people don't want to talk. So when the men were on watch, I'd often, particularly in the evenings, I like to go and sit with them because often you can see other trawler lights in the distance and it felt very beautiful. And you realise that sometimes the men don't want to speak at all and you just sit in this long, quite lovely silence and occasionally say something. But I think it was becoming accustomed to one another's ways and moods. Is it a superstitious place, a ship at sea? It is, and I think often it's sort of hangovers of past superstitions. They don't seem to mind about now, but now they still quite like to participate in. And because fishing is so dangerous, I think, you know, any rituals that you can hold on to that will make you feel that bit safer, it makes sense. So one is, of course, that it's very bad luck to have a woman on board, as I was reminded a lot, <laughs> but they had me anyway. And it turned out that they actually made a boat's record. So we made a ridiculous amount of money. I think we made £54,500. And so Don said that actually perhaps I was really good luck. What, what um, are underground <laughs> greyhounds? Stevie, who was explaining all the different superstitions to me, he just mimed big buck teeth and was saying, you know, underground greyhounds. And I had to work out that was rabbits whilst not saying rabbits because then I'd have broken and um, that, that would have then been the superstition kind of uh, writ large on the boat. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. In the early days on board the Philadelphia, how seasick were you? So on the first night, I didn't quite feel it yet, but there was sort of like almost the shadow of something in my stomach. I felt, okay, you don't feel quite normal, but I was very much trying to ignore it because there's maybe something, and I think this is just me, but I felt there was something a bit embarrassing about seasickness because I was a 23-year-old woman on this boat trying to prove that I was tough enough to be there. And I thought that if I was sick, it would be showing that vulnerability that I wasn't ready to show yet. And then on the second evening, I was trying to help Kyle cooking. And I'd been taking these seasickness pills, but I really didn't like taking them because they put you in this sort of sleepy, dreamlike state. And it meant that I didn't feel like I was fully participating. I felt like there was some a glass block almost between my experience and what was happening on the boat. So I decided to stop taking those sickness pills. And then you can tell when someone's going to be seasick when they start yawning a lot. And Kyle was watching me chop carrots and kind of going, oh, that, was that another yawn? And I was turning away and trying to pretend it wasn't happening. And then it started to feel like such an overwhelming experience that I knew I was going to end up throwing up. So I ran into the bathroom and was very aggressively sick for quite a while. And then I came out and I felt so much better and then was not sick for the rest of the trip. And I told, I admitted to Kyle later that I'd gone to throw up because I thought I was going to throw up on his carrots. And he said, oh, I thought it would been quite funny if you'd thrown up on my carrots. Kind of <laughs> wish I'd seen that. <laughs> when you talked to fishermen about seasickness, did they tell you that that, that could change over time? Like, uh, are you just unlucky if you're seasick or might it shift as you spend time at sea? This was something that really surprised me and I think is really interesting and it tells you more about the psychological uh, causes of seasickness as well, which is that Kyle was saying that he and his cousin never, ever got seasick and sometimes these older men would be throwing up in these huge uh, 4-8 gales and he would feel nothing at all and would kind of be laughing at them. And then his cousin had a baby and then started to become seasick and so his suggestion was that perhaps it's once you have more things that hold you to the land, once your, your connection to that la the land is a bit stronger, maybe you become more seasick because in a way your relationship to the sea has changed and you're that bit less comfortable being there and that bit less able to 
align yourself to its rhythms as as easily. So I was wondering if one of the reasons I got over my seasickness quite quickly was because as a young woman, there was almost nothing holding me to the land. It didn't take much for me to say, yeah, let's get out into that sea. Surrounded by the sea day after day, did the sight of it get monotonous? It definitely did. And I think, as with so many things, often your mood reflects back on on the landscape. So when I was feeling low I think about halfway through the trip I had this day and I had this as a teenager I often sort of struggled with depressive episodes and had really particular ways to get myself out of them that often involved kind of taking myself off somewhere and on a trawler there's nowhere you can go and it's simultaneously you know you're in the largest space you can see to the horizon in all directions but also it feels incredibly claustrophobic And I think the day that I felt low, and maybe the sea wasn't like this, but in my head it had never felt more empty and grey and the line between, usually the horizon line is this clear line between sea and sky, and that became undifferentiated. So it was almost like, it felt like being in this large grey globe. And yeah, I think that really shifted the mood on board and, and it was halfway through the trip. So no one was able to kind of feel that they were going home soon yet and it felt like we'd be there forever. And that felt like a very difficult day. Where did you sleep at night? There was a cabin down below. So you would follow stairs down from the galley, so from the kitchen. And it was this large round room with pink carpets and all the beds were in cubby holes along the edge of the rooms. They were built into the walls themselves and you'd have a little hanging. Actually, I didn't have a hanging, but I pulled a towel across where you'd then sleep. And so you could see the other men's there in these in these small wooden spaces, slightly like coffins um, with a little light so you could do your reading in there. And then Don used to have one of these cubby holes, but he, as a skipper, um, I think he'd be the first to say this, you don't do as much physical work, so he'd put on quite a lot of weight. So he tried to have a little bed built into the the cabin so he had this pink squashy mattress and duvet and then the rest of us were behind our cubby holes <laughs> you all slept in that one room together was was it noisy at night well people's hours we weren't sleeping at night time it was kind of whenever so you know you'd catch your three or four hours um when you could and then you'd be woken up again so often there was a man down there there'd be someone sleeping and um, maybe someone sitting in the galley watching tv so we weren't all in there at the same time for most most of the time which actually I always felt I slept so well whilst I was there because it was quite comforting knowing there was always someone up on watch uh, seeing what was going on and kind of manning the deck. Were you completely cut off from the outside world or or like could you have wi-fi? Um, I had assumed that we'd have wi-fi because again the fancy Salives trawler had had wi-fi the Crystal Sea and so I hadn't actually even said to my parents that I was going that day because Lamorna, I hadn't really thought about That's terrible. <laughs> I know. I know. I <laughs> know. Um, so we got off and, and as we were kind of heading out and the land sort of became this little line and we were disappearing behind the horizon line, I asked Don what the Wi-Fi was and he spluttered at me and was like, the Wi-Fi? We don't have Wi-Fi. It's so expensive. What kind of boat do you think this is? This isn't a hotel. And I thought, oh, shit, there's no way of saying that I'm going or how long I'll be going. And I found out later that my parents had called up Stevenson, so the, the, the ship company, and had then found out that you could track the boats on the AIS system, so the system where you can then watch all the trawlers in Newland and where they are. And it's a thing, uh, sick fishermen or fishermen who, haven't, who can't go to sea anymore always spend their days watching this AIS to see where all the boats are. It's sort of like a, a habit. And so my parents desperately tracked this little orange line of my of the boat, seeing us. And it must have looked so strange because the way that we were fishing was almost just these zigzag lines, almost like ploughing a field. So they must have seen this boat just going up and down and up and down. <laughs> um, but I think it gave them some sense of security, knowing at least you could still see the boat. It was still there. <laughs> what did Don cook for, for you and the rest of the crew on the last night at sea? Well, he'd been promising all week that he does the best roast in the business of all fishermen in Newland, which is a big claim because a lot of the fishermen uh, love their roasts. And he started at maybe 3pm, which I thought was kind of ambitious and maybe quite early. And he was somehow both on watch and cooking this 
extravagant, decadent meal. And also a, sh a ship's galley is tiny. You can barely fit all the guys in there. And um, there's one stove with a couple of different uh, gas heaters on it and then a very small oven. So he was almost playing Tetris with cooking these cauliflower cheese, potatoes, Yorkshire puddings, um, three or four other types of veg, big roast beef, I think it was, pigs in blanket. I mean, everything, the works. And these things were being rotated. And in my head, it was, it was quite a balletic uh, <laughs> operation because Don would be reaching around, pulling one thing, seeing one thing bubbling, and then saying, OK, that's ready, then putting that somewhere else. It was extraordinary to watch. And then we were presented with the, and I think bread sauce as well, that he'd made himself and taught me how to, or tried to teach me how to make. And then we were presented with this on our final evening. And I think we all felt so sick afterwards that we were just watching the telly and no one was saying anything at all and just nursing their bellies. <laughs> How did the, the mood change on board as that week came to an end and the Philadelphia started heading back towards the shore? There's this sense of... And I think maybe similar to my sense of needing to seem tough, there's a sense of keeping the land at arm's distance whilst you're at sea because otherwise thoughts of home might overwhelm you. Um, and a lot of the men, they really, they do struggle with that leaving day and having to go away from their family, from their young kids. And then finally on the last day, there's this sort of jubilation on board because you know you don't have to hold the land back anymore because you're returning home. So there was a lot more singing and little dances and everyone was joshing and playing and messing about a bit more and doing silly pranks on one another. And then the men call it channeling. And on the last night that you're just, you're dreaming of home and you're allowing it to sort of take over your thoughts. And we're all lying in bed just imagining what Newlyn looks like, what it would be like having your first drink at the pub or seeing your girlfriend or your partner again. How did you smell after your time at sea, Lamorna? Well, I had no sense of smelling bad because I've been amongst four other very smelly <laughs> men. Um, and I don't think I'd changed clothes. By the end, I'd kind of given up on that or on any hygiene. And my face, it looked like I'm quite, I have quite a lot of moles, but it looked like I had many extra moles because I all had all these freckles that were just cuttlefish juice. And I, as we were coming back into the harbour, um, Lofty had found out when the boat was coming back and he was waiting for me at the harbour's edge, which I think made me cry because some of the guys there, their girlfriends had come down and I just wasn't expecting there to be someone for me. And it was sort of, it was just, he's a very tall guy and he was just stood there waiting. And um, it, I found that really moving. And then I got off the boat and gave him a hug. And he went, oh, okay, well, maybe have a shower before you give me a hug. And when I was in the shower, it was just like noticing all these bits of fish guts just washing away down the plug hole. And then sort of getting that sense of, oh my God, you really do smell. How did you spend the first night back on land in Newland? I found it very strange. I think I was exhausted and went to bed quite early. And I couldn't really sleep because it felt too quiet. And you you get um, sea legs, so you suddenly can't walk very straight. And because you'd got so used to adjusting yourself to that rocking motion. So I lay there thinking, oh, it's too quiet and it's not moving enough. So I think I struggled to sleep, actually, and felt quite lonely. And that sense of having a man on watch all the time and suddenly I was back on my own. And I missed the men and I missed the boat. You met up with the crew for a caraboose. What, what is a caraboose, if I'm saying that correctly? Yeah, I think you are. I don't know myself. But there's um, this brilliant book that's a glossary of sea words that was written in the 20th century by a Cornishman who went from port to port all the way around Cornwall trying to record the words that fishermen use so they wouldn't be lost to time. And there's so many beautiful words, unfortunately, most of which almost have been lost, but it's, it's lovely that they're still recorded there. And a cabaroose is a noisy frolic or a drinking bout that often happens when you come back to land. So we met the next day, we found out we'd made this boat record and Don had handed out the pay packets and I think was on a mission to see how much of his pay packet he could spend <laughs> in one night. And we met at about, I think I said I'd go later, because the men said, let's meet at three. And I knew that if I began drinking at three, I would be on the floor by five. So I turned up at five and was immediately given a Sambuca shot. 
and was like, oh, God, here we go. And pint after pint, and we were telling all our stories as if we were these adventurers who'd been at sea for months. And we had this amazing captive audience of this lovely older couple who were sitting there going, oh, you didn't, <laughs> as we kind of dramatised what had happened. Then we'd move. There were two pubs. There's the, the star where we started, which is... Um, it's more the star is maybe where older members of the village go and sit there and have their drinks and less fishermen. And then there's the swordfish or the swordy, which is the fisherman's pub and it's rougher and there's a great jukebox in there and there's always singing and dancing. So we ended up in there jumping on tables and kind of dancing around the place and playing famous fishing songs and then also Ed Sheeran as well and kind of <laughs> jumping between styles as always. As well as that that time in the Philadelphia, you spent time on other boats doing other kinds of fishing. Do the different kinds of fishing attract different kinds of men? They definitely do. And I think it's also to do with age as well. So being on a trawler can often feel like a young man's game because it's exhausting and uh, it's very tiring physical work. And also, once you're older and you've got a family, perhaps you don't want to do that kind of work and be away that, for that long. But then skippers themselves all look, there's a likeness to them, which is an older man who's kind of gone up uh, through the rungs and they're often quite large guys and slightly greying. And then there's gill netting, which is very physical. So that is, that's what Kyle used to do before. So that's young slightly tougher men. One of them was in the army before and he'd done service in different parts of the Middle East. But he said that he found gill netting much tougher than, than going out and, and fighting in wars. What's gill netting, uh, Lamorna? How does that work? So gill netting is you have these standing nets in the water. So rather than a trawler is pulling nets along and gill nets has these nets out and then you pull them in, you're catching things like ling or hake and they're these quite big long fish and it's just incredibly time work both taking the fish out so it's a very thin net plastic net and you're taking the fish out and they all get sort of carpal tunnel in their fingers or arthritis and they're all bent over and it's exhausting and there's there's almost no sometimes you'll be working maybe like a 20 hour shift because that's how many fish you've caught and so you just have to keep going pulling in these nets so those men have i think they're playing techno whereas <laughs> don's playing his crooners you went out pilchard hunting one night are pilchards the same thing as sardines pretty much there's not i think i think that it's actually a marketing ploy the kind of difference in names but pilchards are sort of they're now often known as cornish sardines because pilchards were thought of um something that say like peasants in europe would eat so i think they've had a bit of a rebranding since so they're now cornish sardines but they're, they're pretty much exactly the same and is that a traditional catch in cornwall yeah, definitely. And I think it used to be much more so. And it would be, they'd have these things called pilchard palaces. So in New Lynn in the kind of 18th, 19th, 20th, early 20th century, you'd have these much more ramshackle houses where kind of multiple families would be living in flats. And then on the ground floor, you'd have this, this room where the pilchards would be dried out and then put into these big buses, these big boxes, and then sent off to Europe. And they always kind of, they'd, they'd have a cheers that would be thanking the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope because the pilchards were kind of staple Catholic meal. Like For eating fish rather than red meat. Exactly, uh -huh. yeah. And so pilchers, yeah, they have this long tradition and you can imagine these sort of sequined fish and the sort of stained blood that you'd get in all the cobbles of Newland as the, the pilchards' blood and juices would run down the hills. Everyone would get involved. Wives would be much more present in their, their husband's worlds through that. And then you'd have a break and you'd go and have your, your bread and your cheese um, and then you'd go back to, to salting your pilchards and getting them ready to go. When you were on board the, the modern-day pilchard ship, how did you know where a shoal of pilchards were? How, how could you tell where a catch might be? Well, pilchard fishing is definitely the most exciting and it's the one that feels most like hunting, I suppose. So you go in the evenings. It's quite a cushy job, um, the skipper was telling me, because you are only gone from about 5pm till 10pm and yet you make a real killing at the moment because there's been a real surge in the numbers of 
pilchards in the bay and they're also fetching a greater price and you might get anchovies as well which are very expensive so you have a sonar that is looking for shoals basically below the water and so suddenly on this sonar which has got that kind of spinning line and it's bright green you'll get this blob of activity and you'll know that there's a pilchard shoal right below you or right beside you and then so often when you get to it and you're about to send the nets out, it scatters away again. So it's it's really exciting and it's like watching a football game. Everyone's kind of yelling and there's always three boats out at once. And then you realise that another boat, um, because all these seagulls descend, you realise they've got a catch and then they, they're really jammy and they get to go back in early. And you really resent them because those should have been your pilchards. <laughs> so, so that's how it happens now. Back in the day, how were shoals of pilchards spotted? from Newland? So you'd have someone called a hewer who would be, because they do travel en masse in these big shoals, you can actually see the sort of darkness from the water. So a guy would be standing on a high hill and then he'd make the hewers cry, so he'd yell out and the men who'd be sort of smoking and chatting down by their boats would get in them and then you'd go out and you'd get your nets and you'd try and create a ring of nets around the pilchards and then pull them in like a purse. Is fishing more than a job? Is it more like a, a vocation, a kind of a calling? It definitely is. And I think it's, almost, it's important for the fishermen to see themselves as that because I think if it takes up that much time of your life, you have to create some kind of, you have to mythologise it slightly. So they say that they, you know, they're men of the sea. Also, it's in so many of their families, and that's such a deep and powerful thing to know that for generations, men have been going out to sea, and it, it's sort of seen as this kind of, yeah, this calling. Mm. And certainly Don gets edgy if he hasn't been at sea for a while. He can't go. I don't think in his life he's ever been away from the sea for more than a couple of months, maybe when a boat's hauled up because it's having repairs. And so you get this ache and this yearning to be out there. But then I found that was kind of a double impulse because then whilst you're at sea, you're deeply missing home as well. And by the end, you just want to go back. So I think it's a difficult kind of swinging pendulum of wanting to be there and not wanting to be there and sort of feeling that there's no other job out there for you because it, it doesn't translate well to other careers. So you'd almost have to start again if you gave up your work at sea. and you're kind of drawn to it and want to make more money next time. There's a sort of gambling element to it as well. So I think the men have a very complex relationship with it. Although you, Lamorna, have got this connection through your mum and, and, of course, through your name, were you seen as an outsider? Like, were people a bit wary of you at first? Definitely. Um, I actually felt incredibly embarrassed about having a Cornish name because... Lamorna was right round the corner. It felt a bit like being called London. And uh, then also when they heard my voice, and I, I'm immediately a posh Londoner, I think they were kind of dubious of my connections to Cornwall, which I think was, it was valuable because I think, particularly as a child, you cultivate this identity of anything that makes you a bit different. So I saw myself as Cornish in London because of this, this name I had. And then as soon as I got to Newland, I realised how wrong I was, that I, I wasn't really at all Cornish and definitely made peace with that. But I think as a young person, I'd gone there sort of seeking a, a kind of belonging. And it was this gradual process of realising you can't belong to this place, but you can get to know it and you can get to know these people and it can become a friend to you. So I think I saw my role as because the, the men knew I was writing a book about fishing and because actually books have been written about Newland before that have painted them in perhaps quite a sensational light uh, and kind of drawing upon maybe some of the darker elements and exaggerating things a bit. They, they thought, OK, here comes another journalist who's going to tell this little story and then leave again. And it probably won't be true and she probably won't bother to get to know us properly. So I felt that felt valuable because I felt like I had to work hard in order to prove them wrong about that and to make sure that I was telling th their stories as truly and as fairly as I could. One of the realities for fishing villages, of course, is that boats are lost at sea. Were stories of that common or, or significant as you spent time in Newland? There were a lot of stories and I think it's that sense that each time someone's going out, you don't know what's going to happen because it is a very precarious job. Uh, one story that I found particularly moving was by a fisherman I got quite close to 
I'd gone onto his boat early in the morning and we're having coffee on his trawler just before they headed out to sea. And he said, did I tell you before that my dad died at sea? And I said, oh, no, you hadn't told me that. And his dad had planned to quit the industry. He was frustrated with fishing. And maybe that's something that a lot of men say and don't act on. But he, I think he'd had a job set up. He wanted to go into trucking instead. And he'd always told Nathan that Nathan wasn't allowed to become a fisherman because it was too dangerous a job. And then the week before he was meant to quit, the whole boat sunk and was sort of pulled down. I think they must have pulled up a lot of sand in the derricks and it unbalanced the boat and it went down. The Martha Margarita, I think it was called. And Nathan, shortly after that, after his dad's death, became a fisherman and is now a skipper. That surprised me and I asked him why you would go into fishing or would that not be so difficult if your dad had been lost to it and had told you not to become a fisherman? And Nathan, who is a kind of wisecracker, but also has this wisdom to him as well, kind of looked at me quite seriously. And he said, well, you know, I had to find out if he wasn't behind that horizon line. Mm. And I found that so beautiful and this kind of sense of the supernatural or relationship with the dead at sea. And then he looked at me and was like, oh, you know, or some shit like that, and kind of completely dispelled the whole thing. But it, it did make me think whilst we were out there that... For many of the men, that's their connection to their ancestry, is through treading those same waters that their, their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers did. Is the Philadelphia and Don at its helm still heading out into the Atlantic Ocean? Sadly not. The Philadelphia sort of gave her last wheezing cough and has now been retired and I think has been broken up. Um, they often explode old boats. There's not much you can do with them, so they have quite a quite a horrifying end really but he's now he's a skipper on a different boat instead and that system you mentioned that keeps track of every vessel as it voyages and that your parents could watch when they didn't know where you were they could at least watch the ship that you were on zigzagging about the ocean do you ever find yourself Lamorna just checking in on that and seeing what's what's happening out at sea I definitely do so until recently I was working at an education charity which is Sometimes it's an office job, and when it felt most like an office job, I'd occasionally just open up a new tab and just have a look at the boat that Don was on or the boat that Danny was on with his pilchards and just kind of see what they were doing. And you can actually, you can not only see exactly where they are, you can look at past trips, and so you can see the shape of the lines they cut through the water, which also I found quite comforting. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. It's been so lovely to get to talk about it in depth. Lamorna Ash was my guest on Conversations today. Her book is Dark, Salt, Clear, Life in a Cornish Fishing Town. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Jonathan Green and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! Yeah, bonjour. How many Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? Oh, yes, Oh. Oh, really? Uh, well, that's extraordinary. Thanks. No, no, no. This and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Return ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app.